Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be at this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there. It's good to see you this morning. You look good. I don't know if I told you this morning, but you look good. Thank you very much. All right. Um, hey, I don't want you to answer the question out loud, but I want you to think about it. What comes to mind when you hear the word love? Right? You don't say it out loud. Right? Just quietness of your own mind there. What comes to mind when you hear the word love? All right, since we're in church, hopefully God and or Jesus comes to mind fairly quickly. All right, spoiler alert, that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay? Um, but beyond that, maybe you think, uh, if you're married, maybe you think of your spouse. At least I would hope so. Um, maybe you think of your kids, if you have children. Though depending on like, how hard it was to get your kids to church today, maybe you don't think of them as quickly as you should. Right? Um, right? Or we could go, I mean, you could go on, press that some other ways. Maybe you think of the Kentucky Wildcats. Right? Big win last night. I'm glad that Kentucky got more of a praise than... Anything else we've said so far? Okay. <laughs> All right. uh, Kentucky Wildcats, maybe you love coffee. Right? Maybe you love chips and salsa. Maybe you love gummies. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. All right, we could answer that a lot of different ways, things we, we love. Maybe there's a, a select few of you, the, the few, the proud, that when you hear the word love, you think of your job. Nobody? Okay. All right. Well. I guess it's just me. Um, so we could play that game in here for a while if we wanted to, right? What, what do you love? What comes to mind when you hear the word love? But I want to take that question now and think about, uh, kind of take it maybe outside of yourself or outside of these walls. What is the culture around us when you hear the word love? Like when they hear the word love, what do you think comes to mind of, of sort of culture in general? Right, if we were to answer that question from a cultural perspective, right? think about the headlines you've seen. Maybe the headlines that say something about the word love. Okay, maybe the, uh, if you're watch video, news videos and stuff online, maybe on TV, maybe news clips or reels that have something to do with love, what comes to mind when you think of those? Right? How does the, the culture define love? Right, now, on, on one hand, the, the people of God should not be overly concerned with how the world defines love. Because later on, we're in Romans 8 this morning, a few chapters later in Romans 12, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. So in one hand, like, we shouldn't be overly concerned with what the world says about love, right? Because we're not held to that standard as a people of God. But then on the other hand, there, the reality exists that we do live in this world, okay? We're not of this world, but we live in this world. I hope we're growing in our ability and our willingness and our desire to like engage people that are being discipled by the narratives of this world. Right? Many of us were raising children in this world. And so I do think there's something to be said for us, kind of understanding how the world sees love, how the world thinks about love, maybe how the world defines love, uh, so that we might be able to sort of redeem that according to, to what the book says about love. And so uh, we're going to, Spend the next few weeks, right? That's our, our premise for the next few weeks. Is we're just going to talk about love, right? It's an appropriate time of the year to do that. Uh, it's that time of the year where you, you walk in Walmart and you're just smacked in the face with Valentine's Day, right? They, listen, they've been doing that since like December 26th, 
It was like, get this Christmas stuff out of here. It's Valentine's Day. Or Hobby Lobby's been doing it since like mid-October. Right? That's how they just keep things on like a quarterly rotation. So wait a couple months, and it'll be time for them to put their Christmas stuff back out again. Um, anyways, but if we're going to talk about love, any discussion about love has to begin with the source of all love. Right? The one who is love, according to 1 John. And so uh, we're going to do that in Romans 8 this morning. Even though I just said 1 John, that's confusing. Um, let me read, starting in verse 31. All right? Excuse the, uh, excuse the nasal congestion here. I probably sound like there's something parked on my face, but it is what it is. All right. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of the, uh, Romans 8 is regarded as one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible, and for good reason, right? We'll talk about it a little bit here in just a minute, but um, but notice, I think we've got to set this in context a little bit, okay? Because Paul starts with, what then shall we say to these things, right? If Paul's going to, if he's about to tell us or uh, respond to these things, then we probably need to know what these things are, okay? So if you go back, really, when he says these things, this is everything that Paul has said up to this point in the book of Romans, which is a lot, right? Romans is packed full. I'm reading Romans in my own uh, sort of Bible reading plan right now. It just so happened that this morning I was in Romans 8. Love it when a plan comes together. It's almost like God knows what he's doing, right? So Romans is packed with stuff. Right? So really when, when Paul says, talking about these things, what shall we say to these things? It's everything that, that Paul said up to this point, which again is a lot. And, and True story. I know a pastor that preached through the book of Romans for eight years. Eight years. I thought they would get more of a reaction. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how you're wired. That either sounds amazing to you or like just awful. Okay. Uh, but eight years in the book of Romans because he says a lot. But even if we just back up to like earlier in chapter eight, everything that Paul has said so far, here's a, here's a recap. Okay. In verse one, Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm not sure there's a better verse in the Bible. Right? There's no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. And then uh, you, you bounce down a little further in verses 15, 16. Paul writes that, that we've received adoption as sons and daughters into God's family. Uh, we've been adopted into the household of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? You, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are a son or daughter of the king. Right? And then as that, you go into the next verse, Paul elaborates on that and talks about how we are uh, co-heirs with Christ or fellow heirs with Christ because we are adopted into God's family. Right? You go on again a few verses, or actually it's a verse after that, verse 18. Right? Paul says that, uh, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In, in other words, as an adopted son or daughter of the king, and the, the joy that you'll experience 10,000 years from now makes any suffering, any pain that you experience on this side of eternity just it's like a blip on the radar. Right? Like a spy balloon or something. Is that too soon? That might have been too soon. That was too soon. Okay. Forget that. Strike it from the record. Okay. All right, even you go on a little further. In verse 26, he talks about even in those moments of, of suffering, in those moments of weakness, the Spirit of God like intercedes for us. Like, when we don't even know what words to pray. Anybody ever been there before? You're just like, I'm so broken, I don't even know what to pray right now. Right? The Spirit of God intercedes for us. Or the third person of the Trinity is like, hey, I got you. I got you. Right? And then he caps it all off in uh, verse 28, maybe one of the most quoted, also probably one of the more misunderstood verses in the whole Bible, when Paul just says that, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. So when Paul says, what shall we say to these things? It's all those things and more. And listen, it, just hear, like, just pause for a second. Consider everything we just said. Let me recap it for you. There's no condemnation for you if you're in Jesus Christ. Right? In Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. Right? You're a co-heir with Christ. That the sufferings and pain you experience here will pale in comparison to the joy that you'll experience for all of eternity. Right? Even in your weakness and your inability, maybe especially in your weakness and inability, the Spirit of God is, is present with you. And as an adopted child, son, daughter of God, He's promised to work all things together, whether good or bad, for your good. Right? That's the promise here in, in Romans 8. Now you can see like, why it's considered to be one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Right? It's packed full of of good news. I joked with the staff this week, you know, I'm reading through Romans 8. I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to add to this. Like, I'm just going to read it and then sit down and shut up and then we'll worship. And I was kind of joking and now I'm like, I don't know, maybe I should. Right? Maybe we'd be better off. You get to lunch a lot faster. Um, but at the end of the day, you are generous enough to pay me to preach. And I have mouths to feed, a lot of them. And groceries are not cheap. So we're going to get after it here. All right, we're going to spend our time in Romans 31 through 39 like I just read. I got three things, right? three sort of things to pull from the text. We're talking about God's love, specifically God's everlasting love. That's what the, the heading in my, my Bible says, right? God's everlasting love. And I want to give you sort of my three points. It's rare I have points, but I do. 
All right, three points. I'm going to give them to you up front, and then we'll talk about them. The first one, God proved his love for you in the past. Second, God proves his love for you in the present. And you probably know where I'm going with the third one. God has promised his love for you in the future. All right, so let's talk about the first one. Let's look at how God has proved his love for you in the past. Look at verse 32. Paul says, He, meaning God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I just want you to see very clearly. As you consider God's love for you this morning, which is what I'm hoping to just lay right in front of you, God's love for you, as you consider God's love for you, consider this, that he did not withhold even his own son for you. Right? He gave the very best of what he had, his, his only begotten son. Right? This is John 3.16 stuff. Right? The verse we, most of us probably know, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life, depending on what your, your translation says. Right? And as great as John 3.16 is, I think the next verse is just as powerful. Right? 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Remember Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? This is the essence of the gospel. Right? This is the good news of the gospel. that listen, God created us to be in relationship with him. But our sin... Right, separates us, alienates us from the God who loves us. But rather than leaving us in our sin, right, God took the initiative. He took the first step and he sent his son, right, sent Jesus into the world. Right, not to condemn the world, but through him, or that the world might be saved through him. We are saved from the penalty of sin, reconciled to, to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Right, because Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He was crucified to absorb all of God's wrath, all of the penalty for our sin. Right, then he rose again to prove that he was more powerful than sin, stronger than sin, that his payment was sufficient for the penalty of sin. And so all that's left for, for you and I, all that's required for us, right, there, there's, there's no more payment to be made. We receive we receive the payment by faith. We acknowledge that there is a debt that we owe because of our sin that we can't pay. And then we cry out to Jesus Christ in faith and we trust that his payment was sufficient. And the moment that we do that, right, the moment that we believe, the moment that we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are stripped of all our unrighteousness. Right? All of our unrighteousness is, is stripped away, and Jesus' perfect righteousness is given to us. Or if you want the fancy theological word, imputed to us. Right? So that I'm no longer judged according to Jonas' unrighteousness. Right? And there's plenty of it. Right? So that when Jesus 
Or when God looks at me, he doesn't see my unrighteousness. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness applied to me or accounted to me. Right? So there's no condemnation for me because I'm, right? because, man, I, I'm living on Jesus' record given to me. Right? There's no condemnation for me. I'm, I'm fully forgiven. And that's your story too if you've trusted in Jesus. There's no condemnation that remains. That's why Paul can ask questions like he does in verse 33, 34, right? He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Right? Who can condemn you? That's what he says in verse 34, right? R- rhetorical questions, meaning that the answer should be obvious, right? If the God of the universe, through Jesus Christ, declares you righteous, declares you justified, like who, who can bring a charge against you? Right, who can condemn you? The answer, no one. Right, if the judge of the universe looks at you and says, justified, righteous, fully forgiven, man, that's, that's what you are. And that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you've ever doubted God's love for you, Right, the, the first place I would tell you to look is look back to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. Right, that, is, that is real, tangible evidence that the God of the Bible loves you deeply. That he did not withhold even his own son for you. To declare you righteous. To declare you justified. To declare you forgiven. Right? But God's love is not just a thing of the past. It's also a thing of the present, right? God proves his, this is my second point, God proves his love for you in the present. Okay, so let's have another sort of uh, exercise here. Again, I don't want you to say it out loud, but just think, close your eyes if you need to. What comes to your mind when you think of, uh, when you think of Jesus? Right, what comes to your mind? I'm willing to bet I don't know, but I'm willing to bet that when you think of Jesus, you, you probably think of things you've read maybe in, in the Gospels. Maybe you think of uh, his birth, or maybe you think of his ministry where he's walking around, teaching, healing, uh, performing miracles, telling dead people to come back to life. Right? Maybe you think of his, uh, his death on the cross. Maybe you think of his resurrection. Right? Maybe you think of how after he walked around on the earth for a few days after his resurrection, he ascended back to heaven. Right, all those things are good and right, and you should think about those things when you think about Jesus. Right, but let me, let me kind of turn that. Um, have you ever thought about what Jesus is doing right now? Let me see, have you ever thought about like, what is Jesus doing right now? Because what we read in Scripture is that He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We're like, yeah, of course. He's ascended to heaven. He's hanging out with God, you know. But I think maybe sort of subliminally or subconsciously, we kind of think that he's like sitting to the right hand of God the Father, like with his feet up on a footstool. Right? Like he's on some sort of like heavenly sabbatical until, until God is like, hey, you can, you can go on back now. It's about, it's about time. Right? But, but that's not what we see according to Scripture. Right? Yes, he's seated at the right hand of God, but look what we just read in 
34. Right? And I want you to notice the, the grammatical change here. Right? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, past tense. More than that, who was raised, past tense. But here's the change. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Like right now, in this very moment, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all those who are His. Right? It's like an amazing thought to me. Right? That, that, that in this moment, like right now, Jesus has you in mind. Right? He's, he's interceding for you before the Father right now in this moment. Here's how the author of Hebrews, Hebrews puts it. Chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Consequently, he is able, talking about Jesus here, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right? Jesus achieved your salvation on the cross. Right? But Jesus continues to apply that salvation right, through ongoing, constant intercession for you at the right hand of the Father. Right? He's, he's, like a, he's like a defense lawyer, just constantly pleading your case before God. Right? And, and you notice know cases that he's pleading? Right? It's, it's, you know what his defense is? It's really not you at all. It's him. Right? This is what we just talked about. This is Jesus like, interceding for you, the right hand of the Father, pleading, like, pleading his case, his righteousness over you before God the Father. Right? It's his righteousness that was that it was applied to you the moment you first believe. And so, so what is this? This is like legal terminology, right? So what does this have to do with, with God's love for you? Well, it means that God's love for you wasn't just something that he showed you in the past, right? God's love wasn't just on display uh, at the cross and, and at the empty tomb. I mean, it was on display there, but it, wasn't, it's not, it doesn't stay back there, right? And God's love for you is not something that's like he'll lavish on you one day, whenever you finally get your act together, or one day whenever you step into glory and you're in his presence and you're made perfect. No, the fact that Jesus is interceding for you right now is evidence that God loves you right now, here, in this moment. And I don't know how you came in here today. Maybe you've kind of got some doubts about that. Right? I've been through seasons of life. Right? We're like, man, how can God love this? Because Jesus is interceding for you in this moment. That's evidence that God loves you in this moment. Right? So God's proved his love for you in the past. He's, he's proving his love for you right now. This very moment. And then the third one, right? God has promised his love for you in the future. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness 
or danger or sword. Right, a, another rhetorical question from Paul here. He asks a lot of them in this passage. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? And the answer is no one. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Right, but notice, notice what, where Paul goes next. Right? He says, he's, he's rhetorical question, the point should be obvious, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. But then he immediately goes to like all these negative things, all these things that we'd really like to not experience, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And, and this is conjecture. This is just Jonas talking. I'm inclined to believe that the reason Paul went straight there is because it's in those moments isn't it in those moments where we're most tempted to think that God is withholding his love from us? Like when we experience uh, right, pain, suffering, right, things that we'd rather not walk through, loss, need, hunger. Right, isn't it true that those are the moments where we're most tempted to doubt that, that God actually does love us? Right, that, that's just my thoughts. Right, I think we, we, we've all probably asked that question. Right, if I'm a child of God, why in the world am I experiencing this? That's a fair question. And the reality is you may never know this side of eternity why you're experiencing the pain and suffering that you're experiencing. Right, you may never know. But what you can know, based on this, what you can know even in those moments of pain, suffering, loss, distress, persecution, whatever it is, the one thing you can know is that your pain and suffering are not indicators that God has withheld his love from you. And here's how I, I know that. Look at the verse, follow, look at verse 37. It says, no, in all these things, what are these things again? Right? In this context, it's all the things we just read. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In all of those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Right? Even in those things, we're promised. We're promised victory because there's a God who loves us. He's always loved us. He always will love us. And then the grand finale, Paul gets to in verse 38. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. It's almost like Paul is just like, I don't, let's just go ahead and summary statement, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right, God, God has promised his love to you in the past. He's promising his love to you here in the present. And then your, here's, here's your hope and promise moving forward is that nothing will be able to separate you from God's love. And that's hope for the future. That nothing will be able to separate you from God's love. And the, 
The reason Paul can say that with, with confidence is because God's love for you is not contingent on you. God's love for you is not contingent on you. Here's what I mean. I referenced 1 John earlier. And what 1 John tells us about God is not that he's a God who loves. 1 John tells us that God is love. In other words, love is not just something that God does. It's not just an action. It's who he is. It's part of his character. God is always and only loving. Right? So God's love for you is not based on you. It's based on his own character, who he is. Right? But not only is God love, that is part of his character, what we also know is that God is unchanging. Right? Again, you want a fancy $10 theological word. He is immutable. He does not change. That means his love for you has not ever wavered. It does not waver. And it will not waver. Right? He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, which means his love for you was the same yesterday as it is today and as it will be tomorrow and as it will be 10,000 years from now. So, the question for you this morning, just very simply, is have you experienced that kind of love? Have you, have you received that love that's been made available to you through Jesus Christ? Have you received it? Right? Have you been declared righteous, forgiven, justified through faith in Jesus Christ? Through, through trusting in his perfect life in your place, through his death in your place, through his resurrection that, that indicated that the payment was sufficient, that the check cleared. Right? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? If, if not, the invitation for you this morning is to come, to receive Jesus, to respond to this invitation from the God who loves you. Who, who did not withhold even his own son for you. If you're here this morning and you're like, Man, I, don't, I don't know if I've received that. I don't know if I've responded to that. I've got some questions. I've got some doubts. Man, then this invitation is for you. Here in just a minute, the band's going to play. I'll be down front. Like, come and let's, let's have a conversation. You catch me after church. Let's have a conversation about that. All right? so that you leave. I don't I want you to leave here this morning wondering like, if you've received that or not. So that's your invitation this morning. But then for those of us that have trusted in Jesus, right, those of us that have responded to the, the offer of salvation that's made available to us in Jesus Christ, what we're doing this morning is we're just being reminded of that. Right? These elements here on this table, right, this is what we call the Lord's Supper. These are meant to be a tangible, physical representation of God's love made available to you through the sending of His Son. Right? The, these elements are a reminder that, that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. The, the bread, the cracker, just reminds us of Jesus' body broken for us. And the cup reminds us of, of Jesus' blood shed for us so that through faith in him, 
we might be declared forgiven, justified, righteous. So here's what we're going to do. Right, the band's going to come up. They're going to lead us just a bit. Um, but I'm going to invite you to come and get these as soon as the, the band starts to play, and you can take them back to your seat. And we're just going to receive these together as a church family this morning. All right. So again, your, your response, your invitation, if you don't know Jesus, I would implore you, I would beg you to come to him, experience God's love for you. And if you have experienced that love, then come, grab these elements, be reminded of God's love for you that, that was the same yesterday, today, and will be the same forever. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning uh, grateful that we get to call you Father. Lord, as we kind of looked at just very briefly earlier, that you've adopted us into your household as sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Lord, we pray, praise you that we even get to do that. Father, this morning we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. Lord, I am grateful that your, your love for us is not something that we have to doubt not something that we have to wonder. Uh, Lord, you've not left us in the dark as to how you feel about us. So we thank you for sending Jesus to the cross. We thank you for the gift of, of your son as the, the only sufficient payment for our sin. Father, we praise you that he absorbed all of the wrath and punishment that, that our sin deserved, that my sin deserves, we're grateful he absorbed every ounce of it on the cross and said, it is finished. There's nothing more to be done. I'm grateful for the promise of, of the forgiveness of sin. The promise of eternal life with you forever. Um, Lord, eternal life that, that we, again, we just read, that, that the joys we'll experience there will make everything we've experienced on this side of eternity just, just pale in comparison. So Father, we thank you for that promise this morning. If, if there's one here this morning that's never responded to the offer of salvation, they never put their trust in you, and I pray that you would reveal that to them this morning. And I pray that it wouldn't be, I pray it wouldn't be shame. Well, it's very clearly not what you want here. This, we just read you sent Jesus into this world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so, Father, if there's one here this morning that's never experienced or received that salvation, I pray that they would come, receive it. You offer it to them. Will they reach out and grab it? And Father, for the rest in here this morning that, that have at some point or another placed their, their trust and faith in you, I pray that this morning they would just be reminded of your great love for them revealed in the work of Jesus on the cross, revealed in the ongoing intercession of Jesus right now in this very moment, revealed in the, the promise that nothing can ever separate us from your love. And so, Father, as we take these elements this morning, would you uh, remind our hearts of that? Help us to receive these with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.